0: Let me pray one more time for us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who bears witness to us about your Son. Lord, may he be here this morning to help us believe. Lord, open your word to us. Show us the wonderful things that are here God reside in our hearts through your Son, by your Spirit, to teach us that these things are true, Father, that they matter. This is, this is not uh, Peter's personal thoughts for us or advice to us, but these are the very thoughts and words of you, the living God, that still ring as true as they were when they were first written. And so, Father, watch over us this morning. Watch over our spirits. Help us to be honest before this text. Father, be with me help me to preach, Father, help me to think clearly, watch over every aspect of it, my tone, my content, my delivery, my focus, Lord, would you be glorified by overshadowing me in all these things for your name and for the hearts of everyone who is here. Enable them all to hear, Father, I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. One of the things that keeps us grounded in this text and puts us in a more likely position to hear it is remembering the immediate context, those to whom it was first written. These elect exiles in Asia Minor were that in every sense of the word, right? They were beginning to experience trials and uh, persecution because they had found their salvation and hope in Jesus Christ, the cold shoulders, the separation, the displacement that was coming from that, and they probably, they they weren't blind, and the Apostle Peter wasn't blind to the fact that state-sponsored persecution, this was local and personal, but state-sponsored persecution that would come from Caesar, that would come from the Romans, was on the horizon. They understood that. They could see the writing on the wall that it was going to get worse. It was going to move from being uncomfortable for them to being deadly for them. When we consider that, what they were going through, what they were about to go through, we might be tempted to think that Peter, taking all this time to call them to submission, was a little bit tone deaf, maybe. That focusing on the good that they were called to do, even while under persecution, under all these threats, was a little bit irrelevant. At least not urgent. Do you ever find yourself wondering... When you read the Word, in light of what's going on, in light of what you're seeing, do you ever find yourself wondering, maybe inside without saying it out loud, what was God thinking? Where was this coming from? Did He not know or understand what was going on? And I don't mean any disrespect by that. I just want us to be honest in front of the text this morning. I've come to believe, I think with all my heart, that when I am tempted to think that God doesn't really understand, that whatever it is I'm going through that is making me think that is actually God's instrument in my life to pull me closer to Him, not to push me farther away from Him. Beloved, don't ever think, don't ever think that God is against you. That God is blind to what you're going through. That He's up there instead with His arms crossed, you know, saying to you, I don't care how you feel. This is what I expect from you. This is what I told you to do. Peter continues to press this calling to submission in our lives, the lives of believers, in every phase of life. He doesn't let up on it. He's spoken directly to slaves so far, to the whole group so far. Now his instructions enter the living room. They enter the family. We have to keep our heads clear in this text because the temptation could be there to think... This is insane. This is just insane. That temptation is real. If we don't keep our eyes on who Jesus is, if we don't keep our eyes on who Jesus is, 1 Peter might seem so crazy to us that we'll end up ignoring it. That it won't be something we like to read or like to focus on. So as we head into chapter 3 now, I actually would like to start by reading again, just reading from chapter 2 to lead into this. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 2, verse 21 of First Peter. The text says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return, blind adherence to a principle it is the recognition of a person this person that we just read about our lord jesus christ the shepherd and the overseer of our souls the life of submission is a means from god to keep our eyes fixed squarely on him it's not how god leaves us to the wolves it's how god is protecting us from the wolves Peter continued to call the believers in Asia Minor to a life of submission for the sake of their Lord, now pointing them to the promise of refuge. Beloved, submission in difficult circumstances is the result and the display of the sufficiency of God as our only refuge. So now may we hear and believe God's Word together. Let me read the first six verses of chapter 3. Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Our text begins with the word, likewise. And it's followed by the predicate, be subject to. So the reference point for this phrase, the reason Peter uses the word likewise, is found in 2.13 and 2.18. In other words, the in the same way that we are called to be subject, we are all called to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution and that slaves are called to be subject to their masters also in context for the lord's sake christian wives are called to be subject to their own husbands likewise for the lord's sake there are markers all through chapter 3 that the at least the first part that link this text to the one prior 211 to 25 you see many of the same phrases be subject to do good imperishable for to this you were called all these same ideas the the word usage is so similar between two and three between one two and three really that um, we have to conclude the basis for the instructions is the same in both texts the flow of thought is the same likewise here means for the same reason so the call to be subject here comes to believing wives so notice how peter is moving from overall to personal his focus now zeros in on the home Back in Ephesians, Paul is instructed by the Holy Spirit to call Christian wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Peter has been instructed by the Holy Spirit to call Christian wives to be subject to their own husbands for the Lord's sake, right, in context. That's why we see likewise. So here we are at this teaching again, right? The Bible's outdated, patriarchal, oppressive view of women. No, no. This is the Bible's instructions to wives so that their faith doesn't fail in the difficulties and trials of marriage. Notice the so that in verse 1. If, if this was an oppressive text, if this was a text that was threatening the value of women, the so that here would be followed by so that, something like so that you know who's in charge. So that you remember your place, wives. But it isn't that. Instead, the so that here lines up directly with the same rationale from chapter 2. Being subject to things that are not worthy of being subjected to on their own displays the kind of hope that points onlookers to Jesus. We who once were not a people but are now God's people, we who once had not received mercy but have now received mercy are called to proclaim the excellencies of the One who did all of that for us. And wives have been dignified as individual recognized participants in that people. Individual recipients of that mercy as women. By being called as wives to uniquely proclaim the excellencies of their Savior. For believing wives that are married to unbelieving husbands... Just as submission by all believers to the governing authorities puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people that want to berate and incriminate us for our faith, the willful subjection of a believing wife to an unbelieving and even difficult husband has the potential to win him over without a word. Without a word. Could Peter be any more clear about the power of a hopeful life rather than a screaming and complaining and bitter life. Where does the Bible get off calling believing wives to be respectful and give pure conduct in a marriage where her spouse doesn't even believe? Right? It, it, the Bible gives us Jesus as our reference point. Beloved, sometimes faith is quiet. Sometimes Jesus is proclaimed by us keeping our mouths shut and entrusting our souls to God to tie up all the loose ends. It's very strange here to identify the purpose of God's people in the world to proclamation in chapter 2, verse 9, and then spend the next several paragraphs paragraphs telling us to keep our mouths shut. I, 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 maybe you've heard this statement. I don't really agree with this statement. I, I don't know if you've heard, but, heard it, but it's accredited to St. Francis of Assisi, but he probably didn't say this preach the gospel at all times if necessary use words you ever heard that you cannot preach the gospel without words the gospel is a message of words it is the very proclamation of divine truth it is the summation of divine truth for the whole world it's impossible to preach the gospel without words but it is also extremely difficult to say the least to display the gospel without living hopeful lives. And the unique display of living hope is faithful submission, especially when it makes no sense. Christian wives, I do not envy you this command, whether your husband is a believer or not. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure and I'm serious that for some wives, maybe when you read this it isn't hard maybe you have a wonderful marriage and that is a blessing don't feel bad about that that is a blessing maybe your husband is is not hard to submit to or be subject to I, I i mean that with all my heart maybe when you read it it's it's fine and it's good for you maybe you've been married for a long time and you've worked into a rhythm with one another and that's wonderful that's wonderful but this command here sounds a little more intense, I think, than uh, submit did in Ephesians. There's something about those words, be subject to, or subject yourselves to, that's just a little heavier. And, and because we're all sinners, and very few of us are, are there yet, most wives, I think, most wives will read this command and think, you have got to be kidding me. You know, let's just be honest. That You read that, you be subject to. I mean, imagine if you're sitting in here this morning or you were there in Asia Minor and your husband is an unbeliever and you read that? Be subject to? And I know we press this a little bit in Colossians, but ladies, I don't want you this morning to throw everything down and shake your fist in God's face over this thinking that He has no idea what kind of man you married because if He did, He never would have commanded that. I want to dig a little deep this morning, women, f- for your sakes. And I know that coming from a man, you know, you're going to think, oh, well, great, mansplaining again. <laughs> I want to talk briefly to be honest about what this does not mean for the sake of just hopefully clearing up any confusion. But the bulk of the text, the purpose of the text is what the text does mean not what it doesn't so we need to honor that but just so we're clear this does not mean if your unbelieving husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ that you do it it does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin you should do it or have to do it it does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view It does not mean that if He's unfaithful to you, you're without any biblical recourse. It does not mean that if He abuses you or abandons you, that you have to remain quiet and accept His daily cruelty at all costs. doesn't mean those things. And I, and I, I don't know why Peter doesn't qualify this at all. But I also want to say this. like I'm not above Peter here, nor am I above the Holy Spirit. I think the reason... I'm qualifying it is not because I think the Bible is insufficient. Like the Bible should have said more. I don't. I don't think that. I think First Peter so explicitly implies this. If you hear the irony in that, I think Peter expects pastors to do that work. I think that's what Chapter Five. That's part of what Chapter Five, when we get there, is saying that Peter is saying to the shepherds, to the pastors, you make sure that your shepherding involves shepherding through these things. I think Peter knows. I, I can't. Right, except in this and except in this and except in this. We don't want the text to die uh, the death of a thousand qualifications. We, we Peter can't, it, the letter would become a book if he says now, not here and not here and not here. I think Peter expects pastors, the shepherds, to do the work of explaining the full meaning of the text. So that would be the only reason why I would try to, it sounds like I'm qualifying the text. I don't want to qualify it. I just want to make sure we don't leave confused. or or misunderstanding or beaten down by the text. That's not what its function is. Uh, The Bible doesn't play those kinds of games with us. Beloved, please understand that God is very aware that faith is hard. He's very aware of that. He's very aware of how the text can feel sometimes. Jesus is there. Jesus is in this passage. Please don't forget that. Believing wife, there's life in this text for you. There's life in this text for you. There's life here for all of us this morning. Look at verse 3 again. Let me read 3 and 4 again. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very... Precious. The Holy Spirit inspired that modifier for the word precious. In God's sight, it's very precious. First of all, we need to be able to discern here that this is not a prohibition against makeup or jewelry or braiding your hair because if it is, it's also a prohibition that you would put on clothes. Right? And it's not that. It is not that. It is a prohibition, women, against finding your identity in your looks. How are you adorned? What makes you, you? Now this, this is amazing. Because the Bible catches all this heat for being, uh, oppressive against women. Beloved, the culture we live in now, the hyper culture is the most oppressive thing against women that has ever existed. The days we live in now. It's, it's what hangs in the air of this culture. This culture demands and screams at women all day and all night. In magazines and movies and TV shows that... This is beautiful. This is ugly. If you don't look like this, if you don't wear this, if you don't act like this, if you don't value this, then you're substandard and you're ugly or you're not a real woman. While Jesus Christ sets women free from finding their identity and their looks or their political views. Jesus is the only man that has ever existed that actually purely values women for what is inside of them and not for their exterior. And Jesus is the only man that actually purely looks at you all the time as a person made in the image of God and not as a thing that has to be shunned because it might make him lust either. Oh, how subtle, beloved the misogynistic evil of legalism. It started in the Garden of Eden when Adam had the audacity to blame God for his sin. This woman... I was fine. I can name animals on my own. This woman you gave me. You did this to me, God. Men, don't blame our inability to control our desires on the shape or clothing of women. God did not make a mistake in the way he created the female body. We are corrupt inside. What God made is very good. It is our own hearts that corrupt our desires. Yes, absolutely, there is an implication here for modesty. But... Modesty is not there because there is something wrong or inherently sinful or dangerous about the female body. Modesty is there because God also made women in His own image and their bodies are not trophies for men to enjoy. Ladies, grasp the dignity God has given to you that in His sight, believing wife, no matter what your husband might think of you, No matter how He might treat you, in God's sight, in God's sight, you are chosen and precious. You are not a slave to what the culture says you must look like. Your value is not found in your appearance and you are not required to be beautiful in the eyes of the world. Know what the world is before you stake your life on making it like you. Know what it is don't think, for example, that the same world that is so brutal and evil as to justify the butchering of unborn children has any grasp at all on what it is to be beautiful. Only Jesus, I'll say it again, I stand behind it, only Jesus truly, purely values women. You know, that, that that's why... While the Pharisees and self-righteous mumbled while that woman was washing Jesus' feet with her hair. Do you remember that? You know that Jesus was the only man that has ever truly valued women because when she did that, He didn't have to blush. He didn't tell her to quit it because it might look bad. He was probably one of the first men in that woman's life that saw her as a person and not an object. Believing wives. Believing wives. Instead of all this, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It doesn't matter what you see in the mirror. It doesn't matter what the world tells you is beautiful. It doesn't matter what the world tells you is strong. God sees you. And believing wife... You are a member of a chosen race. You are a priestess in the royal priesthood. You are a citizen of the holy nation. You are a person for God's own possession. You have been called to proclaim the excellencies of your Savior. You are a full citizen. Look to Christ and stop looking in the mirror or listening to your peers or listening to actresses or listening to the media to know who you are. What is beautiful to God has nothing to do with your appearance. What is beautiful and precious to God is when you find in Him something of so much worth that you don't lose faith in Him when life is hard. Listen, the culture, all all, all of the same things can be said in in the same way for men. The text is addressing women right now, so that's what we're doing. But the same culture that has created this problem of image and beauty and all this, and strength and character is insufficient to now fix it. The culture can't save anybody. And we're a part of culture. We're in it. It's not my point. But it can't save anyone. It can't give what it promises. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can give what it promises. So, the answer to the world's pressure on you is not to become... to to, yeah. I am beautiful. I am beautiful. And now everyone else has to recognize my beauty too, even if I don't look how they want me to look, even if I'm not how they want me to be. No, no, no. This is not self-affirmation. That's not what's happening here. This is way better than that. These commands have nothing to do with how other people see you, nor does it have anything to do with how you see yourself. That's the whole point. This is the clarification for, it's such a gift of mercy of what God finds beautiful. That's what's happening here. Not what we find beautiful, what God finds beautiful. And in God's sight, to Him, you are chosen and precious. There is no guarantee in the Bible that you will be chosen and precious to anyone else. So trying to find your hope in convincing everyone else that what you think of yourself is true is a dead-end street. It doesn't matter. Believing wife, believing women, God has validated you. He has accepted you. Notice that this is meant to result in a peaceful demeanor, not a frantic or demanding one, in verse 4. The culture will tell you that the way to establishing your femininity is to scream about it. Or don't shave your armpits or something. I... It, it's the gentle and quiet spirit that results from and displays having your hope in God right, having your hope in God means you no longer try to manipulate or control others with your personality which men can do that too again the text is to the women here and it means you're freed from finding your hope in anyone else including your husband and it's not because a woman's place is over in the corner with nothing to say. It's because women who hope in Christ don't have their hope in other people. Adorn yourselves with faith, ladies. Let who you are in Christ be who you are. Remember Paul's instructions in in Colossians, that, that in Christ the, the, the male and female distinctions as far as the world sees them are gone. Gender's not gone. That's not what Paul is saying. But like, the the, the hope is not, I am a woman. No, 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 no. No. The hope is, Jesus is Jesus. That's the hope. That's the rock. The minute, even in the name of faith, that you get turned inward to look to yourself for identity and meaning and hope, you're hearing a false gospel. Adorn yourself with faith, ladies, So we can be acceptable to men? No. No. Look at 5 and 6 again. For this is how, for, because, here's why, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That was their adornment. Not because of their husbands, but because it displayed faith and hope in God. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. Obeyed Abraham, calling him, Lord. That's probably not gonna happen. Doesn't need to happen. (laughs) Alright? And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When Jesus comes, marriage ends. So it's not forever. Marriage is not forever. So ladies, you are not going to be defined for eternity in what really lasts, by your husband, or by your personality, or by your looks. What makes you beautiful in the sight of the one who made you is when you look like his son. And that has nothing to do with your outward appearance in 2.23, right? God finds beauty in faith. That's what is pleasing to him. It has always been pleasing to him. When in the midst of the difficulties of marriage to a fallen man, you continue entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, who judges with right judgment and not by appearances. Do you, as, as we move through, do you see that subjection to something or someone is never about the immediate object of it? It's never for the sake of what you're subjecting to. It's for the Lord's sake, every time. Subjection is never about its immediate object. Subjection is about what it displays of the worth of where and in whom you have placed your hope. That's the point of subjection. You want to know what's amazing here, ladies? Do you know when precisely, if you want to get technical, that Sarah called Abraham Lord? Do you know what she was doing when she said that? She was laughing. Let me read to you Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through the first part of 14. If you want to go there, you can, but you don't have to. Genesis 18, 9. They said to him, "He sent from the Lord. The Lord, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Bible is earthy. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah is not brought up as an example for you believing wives Because she was this mousy little woman who knelt at the feet of Abraham and kissed them every day. She's brought up to you as an example because when God's Word came to her, she felt the same hesitation maybe that you might feel reading the words of Peter that come from God here. And she laughed, but ultimately she said, okay, okay, crazy that they could have a baby in their 90s, yeah, yeah crazy that you can endure with faithful living hope in a difficult marriage obeying god's word to be subject to even an unbelieving husband yeah yeah that's crazy but you remember ladies what is in that text is anything too hard for the lord is anything impossible for him do not fear what is frightening ladies It's easy for me to say, but God is saying it to you. Do not fear anything that is frightening. God knows this is frightening. You see how beautiful six comes in there? Don't fear anything that is frightening like this command is frightening, but don't fear. I know your name and I will not lose one of my sheep. God will find every single last one of them and He will find many through the faithful, gentle, quiet beauty of the woman's soul who believes His Word and so proclaims His sufficiency and God uses that as the means to bring Him to Himself. Holy women were those who hoped in God. You see that? So that's still the same argument for the necessity of heavenly mindedness. Such a mindset is the only way we are going to stay sane in this world husbands well let me say this first ladies this command is not here because you were made to proclaim the excellencies of your husband you were made to proclaim the excellencies of your savior your reference point is the one who gave you a name who gave you mercy who sees your soul don't forget that in the insanity of this life and brothers The text is not silent to us either. Look at verse 7. Likewise, there it is again, for the Lord's sake, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The lady might say, that's not fair. We got six verses. He gets one. but the one here that we do get, ladies. It's almost sad that this has to be said, that the husband needs to be reminded that his believing wife, if she's a believer, is a co-heir with him. She's not beneath him. Do you see that? Again, the basis of subjection is not for the sake of the horizontal. It's not for the sake of the person or the emperor or the ruler or the boss or the husband in front of us. The basis of subjection is its purpose, its ability to so powerfully display the sufficiency of Jesus. Husbands, this is a call to us to understand the difficulty of what our wives have been called to do and to have our treatment of them shaped then for the Lord's sake. It would probably be good for us to remember sometimes when we're tempted to be harsh or less than understanding Or unkind or not gentle with our wives that her dad is God and her older brother is Jesus. And we might think we're cool, but if they show up at the door to have a little talk with us because of the way we're treating their daughter, it's not going to go well. And we might, do you see how Peter wants everyone's eyes in the church on Jesus, husband and wife. There are differences between men and women. These are not qualitative differences, like the differences decide what is better. There are just differences. There was a time when everybody knew that. They're not qualitative differences, unless we think that strength means you're better than someone, right? These are differences in the role we each uniquely play as husbands and wives in this holy nation, in this household that God is building. The physical frame of our wives is physiologically weaker than ours. It's just, that's the way it is. And in Christ, that is not to be seen as an opportunity for exerting our strength, but for employing our strength to care for them. That's why we're physiologically stronger, to care for them. If we want uninterrupted prayer in our homes, we have to lean on Christ. Prayer is hindered when we take advantage of our wives. Husbands, and I need a mirror, but husbands, do you understand what God is saying to us about the value He places on our wives. Because in God's sight, the woman who lives with hope in Him is very precious. God has called us likewise for His sake to treat them that way. Do we realize that? We we you, we don't get to belittle her because maybe she gains weight after giving birth. We don't belittle her by comparing her to the fake and contrived nonsense we see all around us. God is not measuring her like we might be tempted to measure her, so treat her accordingly, brothers. And I know there's more to say here on our end. You know, again, it's it's not that God is saying that men are hard to deal with and women are easy to deal with. That's not the point of the text. It's not true. Everybody, male or female, can be extremely difficult to deal with, especially to live with. The point of the text here is that we are called to care for them. The way we treat her in light of how God sees her and calls her and what He calls her. Now listen to how Peter summarizes all his thoughts here. Look at 8 through 12. Finally, all of you. So you Brings everybody in. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Let's Remember at the end of chapter 2, remember Christ. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Imagine for a moment the oasis that the body of Christ, the church, would be for all of us in this world if we sought the grace of our God to submit to verses 8 and 9. Imagine what this would be like if we all bowed before verses eight and nine. God seems to believe that He is such a fountain of hope for us that we can really let go of everything in this world and treat people way better than they deserve because that's precisely how He has treated us. The Bible even commands sympathy for one another. That would go really far sometimes. Sympathy for one another. Tender hearts. You know what Peter is saying? Just give each other a break sometimes. Not every offense is worth parting over. Not every offense is worth holding on to for 50 years. Sometimes our emotions get the best of us and we make mistakes. Sometimes we don't see as clearly as we need to see. We just need to understand each other a little bit. Tender hearts. Just... It's hard out there. The wind is cold, literally now. Moms and dads, parents, why are we so hard on each other? None of us has cornered the market on raising kids. But let another parent raise a kid a way we don't agree with, and man, they are anathema. Just just give each other a break. I'm not saying alleviate responsibility, or when something is wrong, that, that means you don't confront it. I'm just saying not everything... Not everything is worth fighting over. And I know right now everyone probably hears that. Is, That's right. Be more nice to me, man. Forgive me more. You forgive me more. You love me more. You give me sympathy. You be tenderhearted to me. No, you know, the text comes to everybody. Sometimes we're not that easy to be nice to. So give the people struggling with being nice to you a little bit of a break too because maybe you're really difficult. You know, it's possible. We live to the contrary. That's Peter's word of what is natural because we're here to display Jesus. We see another phrase from chapter 2 here, for to this you were called. This is what it means to look like Jesus here. So we need Jesus And that's exactly where Peter takes us. He quotes Psalm 34 as the motivation for obtaining the blessing that results from faithfulness to these things. We need to remember here once again that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter believes the Old Testament prophets were serving this new people, the church, of which these exiles were a part. And so his quotation here allows us, even requires us to see Psalm 34 as a whole ultimately written to the church. When New Testament authors cite a passage, they're wanting the reader to go to that passage and read the whole thing. They're reminding them of something somewhere else. So let me read Psalm 34 to you this morning. The poor man cried. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Those who are crazy enough to be subject to horizontal things in this world and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now you know when you are in 2, 4 through 10, this is you. You are righteous in Christ. Cry for help. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Oh, beloved, God has his eye on you this morning. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the beatings we will take in this world for having our hope fixed in another one. But the Lord will deliver us out of them all. Submission in difficult circumstances is the result and display of the sufficiency of God as our only refuge. You and I will take a few steps forward and then a few steps back over and over again all our lives. Wives may often submit and then they'll not be able to do it. Not even necessarily because of situations where they shouldn't, but even when they should, they won't always be able to do it. Husbands may often treat their wives in an understanding way. Husbands may try to keep everyone in the family focused on the truth, but then there will be days that they falter and they treat their wives and families poorly. So when the text meets us with commands that we may genuinely desire to do our best to keep, but know deep down inside that we aren't up to the task, at least not all the time, where are we going to go? We go to our refuge we go where we always go that's why peter brought in psalm 34 he knows what it says that every benefit of god's care and protection that comes to us as we try to navigate through this life does not come as intermittent rewards for when we're doing well it's not the way it works we have god himself as our refuge as totally for us at all times forever because of 1 Peter 2, 22-25, because of Jesus and what He has done. Jesus always submitted to the Father. Jesus never tried to deceive anyone. He never used His place of ultimate authority as a club to beat others over the head with. He did not threaten. He did not lash out. Even though He was threatened, even though He was treated poorly enough to justify taking revenge, He never did it. He fixed his eyes on his father and never wavered from it, even when he was in the dark night of the soul and beloved, because of this, because of Jesus, God is our refuge, especially when we faltered. Two, four through ten was already spoken over all of us who believe or will believe. We have been shown mercy. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins to satisfy God's justice. And Jesus has given us his righteousness as a gift to satisfy God's righteous requirements. God isn't telling us here how we earn our salvation. He's telling us the kind of freedom we have to follow him in this world because our names are already written down in heaven. And not a horrible husband or a horrible wife or anyone else in all creation can erase our names or separate us from his love. Hopeful lives are the result of what Jesus has done for us and they display what Jesus has done for us. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So this morning as June comes, we sing this last song together and have a time of invitation. Almighty God stands ready and able this morning to gladly receive all who come to Him by grace through faith. Lay your burdens down. Repent of all your sins. Repent of your rebellion against him. Repent of your insistence on doing things your own way. He will not turn you away. Come to him and find refuge. Come to him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for its perfection, its wholeness, Father, its power. Lord, I praise you for providing it for us, your people, that we might know you because it reveals your Son to us, our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray now as believers and unbelievers alike, consider now in this moment what this text has said. May the one who already believes find their refuge in you as they struggle. May the one who does not believe find their refuge in you for salvation. Father, may both find their refuge in you for salvation and may both find you as their only refuge. I ask and pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.